Hello, mech fans. This is Duncan Fisher. Hold on firmly to your mana potions, fireballs, and familiars, because you are tuning in to your regularly scheduled episode of the First Circuit Podcast. And get your with that. Hello and welcome to the First Circuit Podcast, episode number one hundred and fifty-seven. <laughs> Today, we're not going to be talking about Macware Online yet again, sorry about that. Today, we're going to be talking to a person instead. I know social interactions are weird for us, but uh... hello, Chris. Welcome to the First Circuit Podcast. Hey, everyone. So yeah, today we have the special guest, Chris Lowry from uh, Pyrenic Games, uh, also potentially known for his work for Catalyst Games, and we're going to be talking all about his person and his work on mostly the Kestrel Lenses DLC. Dang it, Chris, now I kind of took away your intro. Um, sorry about that, but who are you and how might people know you? <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Chris Lowry. I am a freelance uh, uh, designer and artist uh, that uh, works uh, for uh, uh, Piranha Games as uh, a senior systems designer and uh, for Catalyst Games as a 3D modeler and illustrator. Yeah. I got a question. And what is a persons? senior system designer? Like, what what does that entail, and what is that exactly? Oh, man. That's a complicated question. <laughs> uh, um, for the most part, uh, a systems designer is the one who pretty much uh, designs the underlying systems uh, for a lot of uh, the game systems. So for MechWarrior 5, for example, like I was uh, the one who was primarily focused on scripting, scripting the weapons and mech markets so when you travel to a system kind of the underlying systems that kind of control like what mechs and what weapons populate the system markets and whatnot okay so in your case it's uh actual game systems rather than the technology other people use to make game systems yeah like i'm not really necessarily on the engine side so much as uh, you know the engineers will tell me what i'm capable of doing and uh, lots and lots of blueprint scripting for what uh, i do as well as um weapon tuning uh for things uh, like uh, for things like uh, the heroes of the inner sphere there was a lot of uh, new weapons introduced that uh, i would have to pretty much uh, work on uh, you know tuning and implementing um but for the most part uh, a lot of the systems design is uh, mostly focused on uh, quest progressions uh, and uh, other like kind of mundane things like making sure the market's working is like the big thing that I was focused on. I got a question like um uh, did you go to a lot of lore when you actually went um say like Davion has certain types of mechs in that type of system or or the area type thing like when you actually put the mechs in there? So in MechWarrior 5 that's mostly controlled uh, by um all the mechs have a faction affiliation that we pulled directly from the master unit list uh, that Catalyst uh, produced. So, uh, and we basically looked at uh, both uh, the uh, random assignment tables and uh, the master unit list to, to determine faction availability at uh, certain points of time in, you know, the Succession Wars era. Mm -hmm. And we've uh, pretty much uh, populated the enemy list uh, uh, for the factions uh, for encounter rates uh, for different types of mechs for different kinds of factions. Um, like that, and uh, we basically just use the same encounter list uh, for the enemies uh, in the markets to populate uh, that side of things as well. So, if you're looking for those catapult K2s, uh, you know, and stuff like that, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a Karita manufactured mech, so you're going to most likely find that in Karita space. If not, uh, um, you're going to have to look at the rare mech drops, which kind of disregards the entire faction availability stuff. 
Okay. Um, like one of the question actually. Um, for for MechWarrior Five, I'm actually doing uh um, heroes. You know, basically trying to get all the hero mechs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain okay? Hopefully, it's it's gonna be a a, a spoiler or something. Is there a certain way to get all the hero mechs in different markets, or where are they, or how's that work? Basically, how's you know how's the algorithm work? So uh, for the hero mechs, um, those are considered part of like the rare mech pool. So mm-hmm. it doesn't um even though the heroes are mostly affiliated with certain factions or whatnot you can kind of uh, find the heroes in different factions uh, um the main draw with the hero mechs is uh, going to be uh difficulty uh, of the markets itself so early game markets are kind of tuned to uh, um, early game mech pools so mm-hmm. if you're trying to target uh, like light and medium hero mechs uh, going to those early game markets that uh, might um give you a bigger chance of targeting those light and medium mechs whereas if you're going for heavy and assaults uh, the later game markets uh, you know will have those uh, uh in the pool and as you get into the later game markets uh, mm-hmm. the way that we have the hero mech distribution right now um for uh, under the hood is uh, basically you have that uh, you know it they just effectively get added to the pool nothing gets removed from the pool um, so you can have an equal amount of finding any hero mech in the higher end markets, but if you really want to target those uh, light and mediums, uh, you can probably go to the um, games uh, easier, you know, easier markets. Yeah. yeah, and then uh, you'll find them more frequently. Because like I, I think I have like twenty nine of the heroes. I'm, I'm trying to get. I <laughs> think there's like forty nine. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to get them all. Like <laughs> Almost. <that. laughs> I, 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 I lost the track of the count around Heroes of the Inner Sphere because we introduced uh, all those uh, hero mechs in that one. Yeah, yeah, true, true. And, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of mech variants, and uh, there's a, kind of another designer that's uh, mostly focused on uh, the implementation and to the picking of all those uh, mech variants. Okay, so. okay. Pretty cool, by the way. <laughs> yep. <laughs> a lot right, of work so Bob... to go around. Mm-hmm. So. Bob has had his personal coaching session now for his uh, mech collection quest. Um, oh, yeah. We're super off of structure and of original uh, thing anyway, but uh, super specific questions. Your enemy spawn tables, are they on a mech by mech basis or on a lens basis? So are lens compositions random or fixed? It's a little bit of both. So uh, w- the way that uh, the enemies uh, um, pick the mechs is that uh, they at first uh, pick a formation and uh, that formation will basically uh, be okay i'm going to try to either have a mixed uh, group of both mechs and tanks or a full lance of mechs and uh, then uh, um there's different types of lances that uh, kind of, kind of be formed uh, from that and we drew a lot of that uh, from the lore like fire lances uh, um scout lances uh, skirmish lances uh, and uh, what they will do is they will try to find uh, specific mech types that fit uh, in those uh, specific mech roles. And depending on uh, the um, allocation of, uh, you know, points, because uh, we basically have something similar to battle value for uh, the mechs okay. um, that determines, like, how um, how much uh, they have uh, to spend on, uh, you know, an enemy unit for a certain uh, spawn. Um they will go to the faction availability table and then they will make random rolls based on the role that they're looking for. So if uh, they're looking for a missile boat, uh, they'll basically call the faction table of any kind of mech with uh, a missile boat tag in it. And uh, then they'll do a random uh, um, roll based uh, on the uh, availability of that mech in that said faction. 
Cool. So if you uh, go to the mech data uh, table in uh, the operations tab and actually uh, you know see the faction availability list in the mm -hmm. um, I guess in the, the side, in like the upper right hand corner of uh, the screen, um, that does feed a lot into how the enemies spawn in the missions. Okay. Good to know, actually. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. I was wondering about uh, how how it works uh, compared, especially to the Hairpoint Schemes Battletech, which is obviously fixed lenses all the time, which makes modding also a bit harder for that game. But mm -hmm. let's potentially take a step back uh, and ask some of our usual starting <laughs> questions. <laughs> we went off. So, yeah. We went way into the deep end, but yeah. yeah. And, and, and sorry for the complete technical dumps. Uh, no, it's fine. Good, fine. We love it here. Yeah, yeah. actually, we love it, so it's all good. I, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the ones who has to deal with like the physical implementation of how things are on the back end. So it's uh, one of those things where if you can, if you ask me a technical question, I could probably explain it to you. But uh, for some people, that's just like, they don't, <laughs> it's all Greek to them. So. Yeah, okay, let's do something for the people who have nothing to do with tech. How did you get involved in the Battletech franchise as a whole? Oh, man. Like, I think... Uh, so when I was... Uh, so I got into the Battletech franchise when I was really young. Um, at about eight years old, uh, when I was in Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts at the time. And uh, I was basically on one of the camping trips where they would take all the kids out into the woods. Yeah. And I remember that uh, that weekend that we were going up, it pretty much rained almost the entire weekend. And one of the um, older you know, kids uh, that was uh, pretty much uh, one of the counselors had... Uh, a copy of uh, TRO uh, 3025 and eight-year-old me was obsessed with uh, you know this very old movie that some might have heard of uh, called Empire Strikes Back mm -hmm. because at the time when Empire came out uh, um, the entire Walker sequence on uh, the Battle of Hoth uh, was pretty much uh, the only time I as a kid has have ever seen uh, you know these mechanical you know, um, things uh, basically advancing into shooting things and everything like that. And uh, it, it's hard to imagine that at the time, like, uh, you know, there's, that was it. Like when it came to, you know, representations of that kind of uh, mechanics on the screen. And so when I saw the TRO 3025 by the kid, I recognized uh, like the Goliath. Yeah. I, I always thought it was the Goliath as uh, pretty much an ad at. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so I instantly latched onto it and uh, pretty much, uh, you know, throughout the rainy, you know, Boy Scout trip, uh, pretty much uh, read through uh, TRO 3025 and uh, pretty much went home. And, uh, you know, my mom at the time picked up uh, um, the box set uh, for Battletech Second Edition when we were going on a family trip at some point in time. And from there, I pretty much uh, was hooked onto the franchise, and then many years later, when I was a teenager, I ran demos uh, for like a local team, ran leagues uh, for the tabletop, mm -hmm. and even when uh, um, WizKids was uh, forming the Click Tech boxes together, I actually traveled down to San Diego to meet Jordan for the first time, and um, pretty much help him with the uh, the demoing of BattleTech. Oh, okay from uh, you know in the comic-con head down there like when it was uh, being first unveiled for like at least the click text uh, game well, that's so cool. yeah so from there i pretty much uh, you know 
went to university, kind of, uh, you know, put it in the back of my mind that, uh, you know, focus on my career. But uh, then, you know, 10 years in the career, I had a friend that was uh, on uh, um, that was involved uh, with uh, PGI's, uh, you know, production team. And mm -hmm. uh, I pretty much, uh, you know, kind of were helping them out uh, um, on a pro bono basis just because uh, I was in a different spot in my life, uh, you know, different uh, role. Um, also in the video game industry, but much more on the mobile side and kind of, you know, didn't really, uh, I was kind of on my way out of that uh, kind of uh, game and I wanted to get back into um, console and PC games. So I pretty much uh, was uh, working with uh, um, Piranha pretty much, uh, you know, on a pro bono basis, working through a friend. Um, but then uh, at one point in time, like when I left uh, my um my studio job and became a freelancer and uh, hooked up with a, a friend in Florida that was <clears> uh, you know running a few freelancing uh, gigs uh, here and there. The freelance work uh, became so much more important that I basically told uh, Russ uh, like, hey, I gotta you know quit the pro bono stuff. And uh, they're just like, okay, well you know, um, pretty much finish up uh, your contracts and then uh, once you're done with your contracts, come talk to us. And uh, since then, I've been working with them for. Um, a little over five years now. Wow, that's cool. Huh. So, I have another completely random and off-topic question. You watched Empire Strikes Back at the age of eight. How did your parents react when the hand got cut off? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, uh, it was cartoon. It was a different time. I mean, and also my family uh, kind of was demented in uh, that they would let me watch anything. Like they let, ah. let me watch. Uh, they they took me to go see T two in theaters. Uh, um, I remember specifically, like, uh, they uh, didn't mind, uh, you know, uh, me watching Alien 3 when it first came out in theaters either. Like, it was... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, T2 I watched in theaters, too. Uh, I think I was in high school back then, and it was a line around the block. It was around mm -hmm. the theater, you know, just to get in. It was, it was nice. It, it was cool. Okay, and likes to date himself. Yeah, I like to date myself there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I, th I think I date myself as well by basically saying that Empire is like the only robotic uh, battle you see on uh, you know screen because nowadays uh, you can uh, I think that that uh, like a movie a year comes out with that kind of uh, stuff yeah. on screen these days with the Marvel yeah. movies and whatnot. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> so, uh, how did you get from? Or first off, what did you study in university, and how did you make the jump from that to the game industry in general? So I entered the game industry when I was in high school, working at uh, a mom and pop retailer within the Bay Area called uh, Network Video. And we were significant uh, in at least the local region because we were a mom and pop store that specialized in um, import games and movies. Uh, um, and we ended up actually servicing a lot of uh, the Bay Area's uh, media market um, when it came to previewing um, video game consoles. Uh, from Japan at the time. So, I mean, it's hard to believe in this day and age of global releases, but, uh, you know, back when, say, like the N64 or the PlayStation came out, uh, mm -hmm. there was almost a lead time of, you know, six months uh, in, in the cases of, like, some of the Final Fantasy games, sometimes like a year and a half between when it releases in Japan and when it released uh, in the Western countries. And so what a lot of, uh, you know... Um, the local media markets uh, like uh, tech TV would uh, do is uh, come and you know grab uh, 
um, the N64s uh, for the Japanese market or the Panasonic GameCubes uh, that uh, would never even come to the you know local market. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, pretty much I grab it from us. And so um, while I was working that job, one of the people who worked with me was actually a level designer um, at uh, a local game studio that uh, was, uh, you know, um, kind of uh, pretty much uh, my friend, but also uh, um, instructed me as to like when I went to university, what to focus on to really get into the game industry to, you know, really become um attractive uh, to uh, anyone who was hiring in the industry. So mm -hmm. when I went to university, um, and this is like very much re reminiscent of the time, because at this point in time, it's not like this anymore, but uh, uh, you only really could go in at the time as either an artist or a programmer, because designers at the time, back in like the days of the early PlayStation 1, were kind of more advanced jobs that people grew into and the entry-level jobs at the time were either QA, um, something to do with art, something or something to do with coding. So I came in on uh, the art side, went to university for arts and animation, um, got out of the university and immediately, you know, started working in actually um, more on the film side. So I did uh, a lot of uh, stuff for... Um, National Geographic specials and um, Adult Swim shows uh, from like the Super Jail and Xavier days. Oh wow! And then uh, after that, uh, um, I finally, you know, we finally got on contracts uh, with video games. Um, so uh, things that like um, a lot of licensed uh, games. I was working on the cinematic teams uh, for those uh, games, and that pretty much led into work. You know, uh, doing jobs for like. Back in the day, Facebook games and uh, mobile games and other, you know, kind of uh, small console gigs. Um, and uh, pretty much when I was working in the mobile game uh, field is when I was pretty much like, you know, I kind of want to focus on what I, what I want to make. Because uh, when you're just starting in the industry, you kind of take whatever job you can get to get the experience uh, in there. Mm -hmm. And so when, you know, uh, the opportunity presented itself, uh, when Russ offered uh, me the position, I immediately grabbed it and have been working with them ever since. That's cool, man. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of the advice that we've been hearing from a lot of people. Uh, yeah. If you want to get in, just take whatever you can and mm -hmm. cross pollinate too. This is, this is the just general advice you would give people who want to take that career path. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, it's a lot easier today than it was in my days because. Uh, um, uh, when I was in university, like uh, you went to university because uh, there was the Silicon Graphic computers. There were like computers specifically made to do CG because home PCs uh, weren't able to really do that kind of work at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but nowadays, uh, like you can pretty much get a professional level rig just by going to Best Buy and uh, pretty much uh, picking up, uh, you know, stuff off at Amazon and Newegg and uh, whatnot and um, things. Uh, a lot of professional scale tools uh, um, are free these days. So you can get the complete Unreal Engine completely for free. Uh, same with Unity. Um, <clears throat> you can get GIMP if you want to learn Photoshop uh, mm -hmm. and get that for free. Uh, if you want to learn 3D, you know, Blender is uh, free. So there's all these free professional level resources that uh, you can get nowadays that didn't exist uh, when I was around uh, that, uh, you know, if you're interested in making this stuff there's no excuse uh, to uh, pretty much uh, kind of sit on the side and say oh you can't do it because if 
you really wanted to pursue it, uh, the resources are out there now that you can go and get it. Yeah. And I, if if making games is the career path you want to do, I highly advise to you know do your research and uh, just go out and try it. Yeah. Okay. And then I have one final career-related question: How do you market yourself? If you even still market yourself. Not enough, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my LinkedIn is so out of date at this point in time. Um, I mostly market myself as a systems designer right now, the, um, mostly because that's uh, what I do. Um, but I do, you know, still say that I have three um, D skills uh, um, for art positions, but that's not really like. Where, that's kind of like you know if I need some money on the side and uh, there's um, a side gig that uh, you know will pay out for like two or three months uh, that I need, uh, I can kind of uh, rely on that skill set. But for the most part, I'm marketing myself as uh, a designer because that's uh, where I always wanted to go. It's just that uh, you know at the time when I was getting my education, there wasn't dedicated design paths like you see today. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, and I have a feeling if you're only doing 3D stuff on the side, it's pretty hard nowadays to keep up with all the super talented people who just do it full time and are super efficient in their workflows and stuff. Yep, there's uh, a lot of that. And uh, for 3D, it's a lot of who you know and also uh, what are you willing to do for as many hours as you can. And, you know, uh, like that was fine when I was just out of uni and uh, really trying to, you know, um, make an aim myself for in the industry but uh, you know now that i'm kind of a little bit older and settled in you know to a skill set and have a wife and everything like that uh, you know i'm much more into the technical side of things because that's uh, a little bit uh, more meaty work uh, for me but also uh, um something that uh, usually results in long-term positions instead of you know six months to a year of uh, just asset creation gigs asset creation gigs and um, um, what exactly is that? When, uh, yep. when you do the base things that you're going to populate your world with, like uh, oh, okay. a tree, okay. Okay. creating yeah. 3D yeah. models for a tree, the texture and that kind of stuff. That's okay. 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 Yeah, you're contracted for like half a year to make trees. And then they're like, right, we got yeah. enough trees. We don't need trees last day before and the game. Then especially nowadays, you just go outside with a camera, photograph a tree a couple of times and get an automatic 3D model that's really good. Yeah, that well, that's that's pretty much what I do for Catalyst, uh, you know, because uh, <laughs> I worked uh, on the miniature production side of things uh, for them um, for this latest Kickstarter. But that's definitely like a side gig that I took on more for like the COVID days than you know really the full time job that I have. Mm. What I've often hearing is you have uh, mostly two D references to create your other two D stuff and three D stuff off, and in your case, you're using three D references basically. Yeah, like uh, there is a design team uh, with people like uh, um, Shimmering Sword or and Anthony or Anthony and uh, um, Bishop Steiner as well as Marco Manzoni, like that do a, a lot of like the orthographic design stuff uh, that will build the 3D models off of. But when it comes to like the TRO illustrations or the um, cover art and stuff like that, they mm -hmm. really want to pretty much. Uh, create 3d models to assist uh, the illustrators to really knock out really high quality work you know very yeah. quickly yeah get the proportions wide perspective of those kind of things yeah so yeah and for anyone listening uh patreon shimmering sword and bishop steiner both i can highly recommend well let's send links down below 
Spider, I believe you had another question. Me? I yeah. had a question? <laughs> you saw it, but I guess. <laughs> what, me? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've been thinking for a while, but... Um... <laughs> Uh, no, I, I was because um, <laughs> I, I, I do I do actually want to hear more personally about the uh, Catalyst Games uh, stuff before we get into MechWarrior Five. Since at okay, least we sure. started with MechWarrior Five. So, like, what's the question for it then? What would we like to know about it? Yeah, put you on the spot. Put you on the spot here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, the. So it was he's in the 3D models and he's also done the illustrations and whatnot as well for the, the Catalyst. And I assume that's what for the... Uh, do they discontract you for basically, you know, mech designs or do you do anything with the law? For Catalyst, no. Um, for Catalyst, it's purely the uh, mech 3D models and the illustrations uh, for the rec guides at the moment. Because okay. uh, my... Um, my availability uh, for you know work for, uh, for Catalyst is very limited uh, because my primary work is uh, you know all the stuff I work on for MechWarrior, so uh, it's really just kind of uh, you know getting those odd jobs here and there based on my availability. Like uh, I owe like currently with them, I can I guess I can say that you know I owe Anthony right now a Kodiak illustration for the rec guides that are coming up. So. Mm -hmm. That's like kind of what I'm doing on the side there, but uh, that stuff is like very piecemeal compared to what I work on uh, with uh, Piranha. So how's the contracting uh, process for you? Do you just have like everyone has your email and if they want something, they message you or do you actively look for work at Catalyst? Um, well, it depends on the client. Um, I am a freelancer, so pretty much I take on work where I can find it, uh, um, but I am... With Piranha, I'm under a long-term contract that's uh, you know pretty much locks me into full-time work, and then anything I take on after that is really just uh, you know kind of asking Anthony, hey, I can do a mech model here and there, you know, just toss me something if uh, you got anything, and they'll say if uh, they have anything or not. Um, the there are a few people who work, work with Catalyst uh, full-time, but uh, for me, like my primary job is on the MechWarrior side of things, and I do the um, the catalyst, uh, you know, stuff more as uh, you know, either a hobby or um, stuff that keeps me sane as uh, we're constantly being locked down with, uh, you know, COVID and everything like that. If it wasn't for COVID, I probably wouldn't have uh, been able to knock out as many um, mechs for uh, the Wave Two Kickstarter as I did. Yeah, I'm having a bit of deja vu, Bob. Don't you feel like we've heard the kind of story before? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> for people we talked to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah seems to be a common theme of the whole uh, catalyst uh, contract work so i i don't know if you're willing to talk about this but uh as a european i'm quite interested in what's the difference between working for pgi full-time and working as a freelancer for a long-term contract company can you talk about that i'm not sure i understand the question uh, um because oh. I, I work with uh, pgi as a long-term contractor yeah, and um, like, what's what's your reason for going the freelance with a long term contract side rather than just applying at PGI and working for them? It's, it's more of a personal thing for me because uh, my work, my wife uh, works in you know the area that we live. We have family in the area, and so if uh, I was to take on a full time studio gig, um, not only would I have to uh, immigrate up uh, into Canada, but mm. 
you know, mm. my wife would have to pretty much, uh, you know, put her career aside and try to find something that she could do up there and everything as well as, uh, you know, saying goodbye to family and whatnot. So uh, it's one of those things uh, where it, it, there's no kind of, uh, you know, um, monetary benefit or anything like that uh, to me. It's uh, really just a more of a personal thing, uh, like for how my family is set up and, uh, you know, trying to yeah. find something that allows me to pursue my career without, uh, with the least amount of disruption for the rest of my family. Makes perfect but, sense, uh, actually. Makes perfect sense. But yeah, it's it's definitely something that I know uh, a lot more people are able to do in these days of COVID. Uh, like it's it, it's kind of odd because I actually had the opportunity to pretty much come on to Piranha and do this kind of work uh, before COVID, which I'm I'm very grateful for because it has allowed me to stay close to family and to, has allowed my wife to kind of uh, you know. Um, not have to quit her job and uh, pretty much restart her career for the sake of my own career. Um, so, uh, you know, it, but I am pretty much a member of the team. And, uh, you know, in some cases I do have to go up to Canada for extended periods of time hmm. uh, to make sure that I work with the team. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm definitely still there in the room with uh, everyone. It's really just, uh, you know, what works best uh, for me and my family at the moment right now. But uh, you never know. Like, I might immigrate. I might find myself immigrating up to Canada. You know, I might not. Uh, it just uh, depends on, you know, how my life pans out uh, with everything else going on in it outside of uh, the day job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I loved, uh, loved being up there for uh, for like MetCon, and it's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, like especially, yeah. Beautiful place, beautiful place. Oh, yes. Good people, too. Lead us on. Oh, no, I'm just saying it's just a beautiful place. I love <laughs> being up there. Oh, yes. You know, uh, good people, good food, and uh, just had a lot of fun when I was up there meeting everybody. No, if obvious uh, streamer, no, you need to segue that into another Oh, question. no, if I was a streamer, like, okay, so I'm taking the <laughs> plus five sword and going to put it inside this, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be casting the spell on this bond. Yeah. That's that's streaming. That's all streaming. Really oh, is. Bob is here for chaos. Yes. Ian, you're supposed to counterbalance. Come on, counterbalance me, man. <laughs> okay, counterbalance. Uh, beautiful food. Uh, beautiful mm -hmm. people. Who else has beautiful people? PGI is beautiful people. Beautiful eh? people. Eh? <laughs> there, there you go. Okay. <laughs> So uh, uh, you said earlier you had uh, kind of transitioning from uh, Macro Online to Macro Five about six weeks before Macro Five launched. Are you still involved with Macro Online at all? No, I, I have been involved in Macro Online for years at this point. Um, I think uh, I've now been working on Macro Five more than I've been working on Macro Online. Um, I I kind of transitioned over to the Macro Five team uh, about uh, six months before the game uh, released and. Uh, you know, I pretty much had to um, fly up to Canada to work on site at the studio for a bit to, you know, pretty much uh, get as uh, much uh, done as possible before the games have uh, released. And since, uh, you mm -hmm. know, working on that, I've pretty much been stationed uh, on the MechWarrior 5 side of things. Yeah. And then for Castro Lances, you took over the role as a narrative designer. Was that uh, more of a someone needed to do it and you were qualified for it? Or was that something you actively wanted to do? It was. Uh... It was a little bit of both, because uh, uh, especially when dealing with uh, you know the um, the more lore focused uh, storylines, uh, it's one of those things uh, that we know the fan base uh, really has. Uh, um, they have a high quality bar to hit, uh -huh. and we want yeah. to make sure that uh, you know uh -huh. we hit it. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was one of those uh, situations where like. Uh, 
while my primary role on the team is more on the systems design side, uh, it was one of those things where we were, because we chose to go down the path of a narrative campaign that heavily focused on um, narrative elements uh, from the novel series and everything, we knew that we had to hit that bar. And uh, so th we knew that we needed to hit it and no one else uh, really on the team at the time was in a position to really research the sheer amount of stuff uh, that you know needed to go into putting the campaign together so it was one of those things where you know uh, um it had to get done so i just uh, pretty much uh, said hey, hey i know the franchise and i know the systems for how the quest uh, systems are set up and everything so you know i can uh, pretty much get this done yeah i'm gonna have to admit i was very surprised how accurate to lower the whole castle lenses campaign was yeah. oh yes true, true. i was rereading the novels immediately but before this whole um, pile right here is pretty oh, yeah. much it. <laughs> yeah. I did not expect you guys would nail it down this much, but yeah, good job on that. Yeah, you actually, yeah, I read the lore. I'm like, uh, it's like, oh, well, that, that's cool. They actually put a lot of good stuff inside there, and they did a good job. You guys did a great job. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, and especially the Magistry of, of like Canopus as well. He did a great job on that one. <laughs> awesome job, by the way. I loved it. Pop's like, I got mentioned. My faction, is <laughs> My faction got mentioned finally. <laughs> so what was the process? Uh, sorry, Chris, go ahead. Oh, don't thank me uh, yet on that front. Uh, well, I, I see one of the questions that you have uh, listed out uh, for me. And uh, you might not um, like that quest line so much, uh, Bob, uh, once we get to some of these later questions that you have listed okay. out Okay, uh-oh. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right, then uh, let's get on with the next question. And how was the process, uh, or what was the process of deciding the DLC's theme? And I mean, later on, we can talk about the primary content of it. Mm -hmm. So, th the fourth succession war was never a guaranteed thing when it came to Legends of the Kestrel Answers. So, as we were kind of uh, approaching the tail end of productions uh, for Heroes of the, the Inner Sphere, Production came to the design team and uh, basically outlined a few requirements uh, for us uh, um, to pretty much coincide with stuff that uh, art production had already started. Because uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm not sure if you know how much uh, people are aware, but uh, in video game production, uh, you know, different departments work at different rates because they both onboard and offboard at different times. And so uh, by the time design was wrapping up with uh, Heroes of the Inner Sphere. Um, art production was already knee-deep in creating assets uh, for the mech factory, the crashed ship, uh, um, the jungle biomes, and uh, a whole bunch of other art resources. And so um, uh, production basically came to design and uh, said, uh, here are the, the pieces that uh, are already in production and that we are not going to be able to change. We need... Uh, um, the next uh, DLC that we had hmm. decided at that point in time to focus on uh, the mini campaign, at the t as we called it at the time, um, to incorporate those things, uh, uh, such as the mega city and uh, you know the jungle biome, and so it was uh, you know kind of uh, the initial work that I did on Legend of the Kestrel Answers was determining okay, all these kind of disparate pieces of stuff that was already in production, how can we string this together into something that uh, you know is uh, um, is uh, pretty much uh, something that we could deliver on. And so we came, kind of came up with uh, bronze, silver, and gold ideas uh, for how we can get this together based on the amount of resources that we could commit to it. So at kind of like the bronze level, 
was the idea that we would take all those pieces and structure um, a narrative campaign out in the periphery, like the Magistrate of Canopus, uh, yeah. and have an entire campaign uh, kind of in those uh, um, un unpopulated regions of space where we can add new war zones, uh, new industrial zones, <laughs> uh, and uh, pretty much uh, take players out into the periphery, uh, so mm -hmm. to speak, and uh, work within uh, you know the existing systems that we had uh, and uh, develop. Uh, deliver on something that, that you know was still um, structured uh, very similar to like how it was in um, Heroes of the Inner Sphere, where mm -hmm. it was kind of just like the story is kind of disconnected from anything else in the timeline, so we don't we're not under any kind of time pressures uh, to really you know do anything. Um, so you can kind of take the story at your own pace. So that was kind of like the one of the ideas that we had at like the lowest level of implementation. The well, I like next, it. You know, I like that one. But... Uh, oh yeah, no. <laughs> but... <laughs> the, uh, a lot of the ideas uh, for that, you know, kind of full campaign got kind of consolidated down into the quest line for, mm -hmm. you know, the Canopus quest line for what ultimately got into Legends of the Castle Answers. But we were, okay. we were we were thinking of like almost an entire campaign structured around that uh, at one point. The the next rung up was uh, pretty much you know um, the the Andurian Crisis, uh, which oh, is wow. when mm -hmm. that would have been nice. Yeah, which is uh, mm -hmm. when uh, pretty much a a region of um, House Merrick space uh, breaks off and creates uh, this four way conflict, uh, you know, between House Merrick. Uh, the Endurians, uh, House Lau, and uh, the Magistry of uh, Canopus all in this four-way uh, battle, and we were going to you know, probably structure something around that, uh, mostly because um, that allowed a little bit more of our sandbox, because the Endurian crisis is a crisis that actually takes place over a 10-year period of time, mm -hmm. and so that kind of um, boxed us in uh, as far as like how we pretty much wanted to... Um, allow the players to proceed but still allowed players like 10 years of sandbox to pretty much uh, get around to the storyline so it wasn't as strict uh, as uh, the last option which is what the fourth succession war was and mm -hmm. the challenges of the fourth succession war were pretty much uh, that this is a very you know well-documented event that took place in very specific uh, regions of space under very specific uh, regions of time and so the big challenge uh, when it came to pitching you know the fourth succession war um, uh, at least internally, was that we would have to build out uh, a lot of systems that would uh, take uh, strip out a lot of uh, the sandbox experience that you got through the base game mm -hmm. and put you on a much more rigid path through a very you know rigid uh, um, series of events that are bracketed off on a very linear time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you know it was uh, it was definitely a point of discussion where you know. Um, we were going back and forth between all three options uh, because uh, obviously, you know, there's a lot, we knew that there was a lot of interest in the fourth succession war, but there's also a lot of technical work that had to go into it. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, we got a game plan together and uh, it's a testament, not just to, you know, uh, um, to production, but the entire team basically, you know, got together and uh, said, it's going to be a lot of work, but, uh, you know, to get all these new systems in, mm -hmm. but, Man, like if if we can deliver on this, uh, this sounds amazing. And so we pretty much uh, committed to you know getting the nose of the grindstone, getting the work done. And it's really kind of uh, you know one of those uh, cases where the entire team came together to really deliver on Kestrel Answers, not just yeah. any individual person. You're actually right about that. Even though I like the other two, don't get me wrong. You mm -hmm. are right about the lore, though, as far as like the Enduring uh, War doesn't really have much. Um... 
has a couple paragraphs, you know, basically like you could find, you know, different types of books, you know, about that war and, and to, to produce the amount of stuff you would produce compared to the fourth succession war has so much involved as far as lore, what systems were attacked by what, all that kind of stuff. You did a good job on that. Even unlike the other two, oh, yeah. you still did a good job. <laughs> Well, that's the the biggest question when it came to uh, what we wanted to take on uh, with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what became Legend of the Kestrel Lancers was, do we want to preserve uh, the core open sandbox experience and kind mm -hmm. of have events happen off to the side of the mainline events to allow players to kind of take things at their own pace, uh, you know, and mm -hmm. if they chose to fly off for 10 years and come back and, you know, um, take the story as they wanted to, or did we really want to immerse them in some of like the bigger lore experiences that are there? And and so basically, like the periphery gave us an opportunity to pretty much just have the wide open space. Mm -hmm. The uh, Endurian Crisis uh, pretty much uh, allowed us to have uh, a lot of flexibility within a ten year period of time. But whereas the Fourth Succession War was like completely, you are going here at this very specific time, and you only have this much time yeah. to get stuff done. Um, and uh, yeah, like I'm, um, I'm really happy that uh, it wasn't just you know any one person, but the entire team, you know, said yeah, let's do that. It 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 definitely felt like that too. Playing the Custer Lancers, it's like oh my god, I can't fix this. Like I need to do this, <laughs> and so like you're kind of pressured to uh, to just kind of advance forward of what you had, and that's it. You know, and, and I definitely yep. like that. Yeah. It was good. Though, to be fair, uh, the balancing options you put into that with the ability to just buy fresh packs off the market if you're in a really bad spot and stuff like that, it, it makes it really flexible and not that difficult if you know mm -hmm. what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing to remember about MechWarrior 5 and just a MechWarrior as a franchise is that uh, we're very well aware that um, MechWarrior for a lot of people in the Battletech uh, uh, community is effectively an onboarding point uh, for how players uh, first encounter this entire IP. Um, if you ask uh, even uh, people uh, like uh, um, Anthony uh, Shimmering Sword, uh, he initially got into this IP through MechWarrior 4, you know, when he was a teenager. And a lot of the, the people that you have, and like, I, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, MechWarrior first came out and, uh, you know, chat boards like lords of the battlefield uh, you know were around uh, that uh, completely bashed uh, how MechWarrior 4 flubbed uh, the implementation based on what uh, everyone experienced from MechWarrior 3 mm -hmm. um but uh, you know MechWarrior 4 made their design choices based on uh, what was you know best uh, for people just kind of approaching uh, uh, the franchise and we very much uh, kind of took a similar similar mantra when it came to producing MechWarrior 5 uh, so we know that you know for skilled mech warriors like our games might be not necessarily be that easy but for those people who are just coming to mech warrior and struggling just to get their mech to go the direction that they want to we wanted this to be an enjoyable experience not just you know for the long term fans but also for those people just encountering the game for the first time yeah yeah, yeah. As much as uh, we here disagree with some of your principles like especially mech lab it makes total sense in this mm -hmm. context too make yeah. make it option like i'm right now forcing myself to not use any of the buy options and just uh, take what i'm given in the gastrolensis campaign and it's it's a good balance That's and a lot of people having here. the option to do that or doing something else and speaking of options um now that you have kind of both systems the like linear campaign with a fixed timetable and the more open stuff do you have any insight what uh, players prefer and what you might be doing for future campaigns we're 
we're definitely reviewing uh, what uh, players uh, have been saying about uh, um, Kestrel answers, uh, but uh, you know, and we are going to structure that uh, for any kind of future updates. But uh, you know, as much as people like the campaign, uh, one thing to kind of note about uh, Kestrel answers is that uh, you know we were only able to really deliver on that kind of campaign because we invested purely in that campaign. Like, uh, so I know that a lot of uh, people were you know. For as many people as there uh, were excited that you know that the fourth succession war and those more lore events that you know were uh, really central to their enjoyment of Kestrel Lancers, uh, there's also kind of the other side of the coin uh, where yeah. pretty much uh, you know we have seen uh, you know the players who also have said, well, you know, I really want more mechs, I really wanted uh, you know more weapons, uh, more things that actually interact with uh, in the, you know the game itself, and mm. it's. When it comes to future content, uh, um, it, it really comes down to on our side. Uh, you know, we only have so many resources to allocate. Uh, you know, for, even for me, I was only a narrative director on Legends of the Kestrel Lancers because there was such a focus on story for that one. Whereas in Heroes of the Inner Sphere, I was mostly on uh, you know the weapon design for things like the heavy rifles and uh, you know the short burst lasers and whatnot. Uh, um, as well as uh, you know those uh, uh, particular quest lines, so there's uh, a different degree of effort uh, that it takes to kind of uh, produce this uh, said content. And so if we go in one direction or another, it really just uh, depends on where we feel you know players will get the most value um, when it comes to uh, you know the content that we produce, and whether that leans heavier on the gameplay side of things or heavier on the narrative side of things is really going to come down to, you know, both uh, the feedback that we get from the players as well as uh, what resources we have available on the team to really tackle those things. Okay. Yeah, you can't ever please everyone, and I think the Steam reviews in particular have shown a pretty clear picture of the divide in the mm -hmm. first few days after release. Yeah. Yeah, so it's one of those things that we take to heart, and uh, if uh, you know, if there is uh, like another update uh, to the game or another uh, DLC, we'll we'll pretty much uh, try to you know feel what we what we feel adds uh, the most amount of value to the game. Um, but as to what that content would be, it really just uh, you know depends. Uh, it's basically a sliding scale between like physical game content that players can interact with or mm -hmm. that more custom you know narrative content uh, that is uh, you know pretty much um makes the those uh, uh kind of uh, more scripted events uh, really meaningful but at the same time also you play it once and you know you don't interact yeah. with it again so it's uh, it just comes down to like where we feel we get the most bang for our buck in that regards, as well as providing the most value to the players. Now, like I have to ask this question. Um, there's a two part to this. Now, uh, as far as future DLCs, like I'm not mm -hmm. sure if we could talk about it because of NDAs and everything, but um, War 3039, the Andrian Crisis, basically as far as the next DLCs, like as far as different things you can put in there. And the second question is, everyone's asking this, clans, um, is it going to be like MechWare 6 as far as a completely different engine, or is it just going to be a DLC that, you know, starts at 35th year or something? I'm glad this uh, question actually came up uh, because I know it comes up a lot, and I've even yeah. talked about it on Reddit uh, before, and, uh, you know, there seems to be a lot of uh, misinformation uh, going around or misinterpretations of things, so mm -hmm. let me try to okay. let me try to clear this up as best as uh, I can um, while staying within, you know, yeah. No. my NDAs and everything. Um, so we will never discount ever 
um, making the clans. The clans technically are within our, you know, timeline for mm -hmm. the game. Yeah. Um, they, they come in at the very tail end of the timeline, but the invasion starts in 3048. So there's pretty much two years of uh, timeline, you know, within our current game where the clans technically, you know, do exist and we do hint to them in, you know, news articles and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, I read that, those. Yeah. Now, with that said, um, this all comes that to down to expectations for what it would take to successfully deliver on, you know, the promise of the clans. And if uh, we were to tackle it in, say, like a DLC, um, the DLC content would pretty much have to be about uh, the same size of content that you would have see in a Heroes of the Inner Sphere or a Kestrel Lancers. Not both of them combined, but either or. Mm -hmm. And so uh, um, if it was uh, just uh, coming down to, uh, you know, say, mech content that uh, exists within our current systems, uh, um, then it's not... Uh, you know, we have the mechs uh, there from MWO, um, so th there's always the possibility to put it in. But the question always is, is that what players really want when it comes to the clans? Yeah. And, uh, like, do you just want them as effectively a content dump like here, uh, like Heroes of the Inner Sphere? Um, or do you <clears throat> want them as, uh, like, pretty much their own full-on campaign? Be their own full-on thing, basically. Yeah. yeah, and so when it comes to that, it... The question then uh, becomes, uh, you know, what is the best way that we can address uh, that, uh, you know, knowing uh, what our budgets are and what, uh, you know, we're capable of doing and whether that means uh, it's, uh, you know, pretty much uh, um, we're just never going to touch the clans, whether that means that we're going to do them as a DLC or a full on you know, new release that I don't know. That's uh, very much uh, way above my pay grade when it comes to uh, um <laughs> how much we can deliver on but I, I think the important thing to kind of get out to the community and you know discuss is that if we were to take them on as uh, a dlc to MechWarrior 5 mercenaries the size of that dlc would effectively have to be equivalent to you know to um what you see in here's the inner sphere or legend of the kestrel lancers just uh, for the sake of you know that's that is what uh, we can produce uh, with the budgets that you know mm -hmm. we have available to us, and if it's anything beyond that, um, is kind of like the baseline, then it might be something that uh, either you know shouldn't be touched uh, for MechWarrior Five or should be touched uh, with uh, a completely different product beyond uh, MechWarrior Five Mercenaries. And uh, like I said, n nothing is decided on that front. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those things that. Anyone who tells you that we're definitively doing something is, at this point, completely speculating. Um, because uh, we have not made those decisions. We're still waiting on you know, sales results uh, from Castro Lancers, so we need to monitor how well the current, uh, um, the recent uh, release on PlayStation 5, as well as the Castro Lancers, oh, has right, uh, yeah. done. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know... Uh, We'll pretty much, uh, you know, have to um, evaluate uh, what the sales figures are for future plans that uh, we have uh, in the works. Um, and if that, if we're, if we believe that uh, that results in a budget and a staff uh, that uh, you know is confident that we can deliver on um, the clans within, uh, you know, the set parameters, uh, then we would definitely love to do it internally. Mm -hmm. Like we know how much of a big touch point it is uh, we have uh, like the assets uh, around so it would you know very much be a great thing uh, for us to do but 
the the budget has to make sense, you know, because yeah, we don't want yeah. to necessarily kill ourselves on the development team to deliver, you know, something that we we know has kind of built in sky high expectations. If we were to take yep, it, yeah, on. it does. Everyone's talking. Yeah, everyone's, everyone's like, oh yeah, yes, you mean at the mouth for it, basically. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah. we and um, we're we'll we're well aware of that, that, and we would love to do it, but uh, you know. If we were to do it, we would want to do it right, and yeah. uh, what that what that looks like is going to be very dependent on how uh, successful everything else that we've already produced uh, does. I mean, so. probably to do it right, though, you would actually um, have it before actually invasion, where they actually have to fight um, like in trials to go fight each other on different planets and stuff like that <laughs> before they come to the inner sphere. <laughs> that way, you well, can have it completely separate from the inner sphere. Don't have to worry about that stuff and just have the clan assets. You know, and well, that, that's, that's it. That's only that's only if we do the invasion, though. Like, uh, well, that's know, before we, the invasion, though. That's before it. You know, that's oh, when yeah. they're fighting each other. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. Because like even even if we do the invasion, that uh, that does mean that some of those mech were online mechs that uh, you know were very much uh, centered in the civil war and also those uh, weapon systems that people like from MWO like uh, you know um, heavy lasers, MRMs, and mm -hmm. stuff like that uh, you know just uh, would not be in the timeline for the base invasion. So the question that would be, would we even want to do an initial invasion timeline, or is it more appropriate to pick something a little bit further down the line like? Uh, um, you know, pretty much uh, one th one off the top of my head would be the um, the combined uh, Ghost Bear War or yeah. you know the Hell Horses invasion and stuff like that. True. Or true. hell, even going into the early Jihad, uh, since uh, the MechWarrior Online has kind of early Jihad uh, um, weapon systems in the game. Yeah. yeah. So it, it it just comes down to like you know what what do players want uh, you know, but at the same time, what fits uh, our production you know goals and uh, our budget. So. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, and with the budget, whole budget discussion, I assume doing a double size DLC for forty dollars is also completely dependent on current sales figures, right? Well, I mean th that also comes down to pretty much uh, you know um, player reaction had to mm -hmm. if we were to offer something that expensive. Our our base game right now, I think, is uh, you know uh, either I think it's uh, forty dollars for the base game. So mm -hmm. um, if we were to offer pretty much a $40 DLC, um, even if it was double size, to many players, that is basically like doubling the cost of the game itself. And is that really yeah. like the you know right path to take, or would you rather have it as you know say a $50 or $60 like a separate game at that point if you're going up all the way to 40 anyways? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's something for the whole market research people to figure out. Oh yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> exactly. and yeah. That's and that's that's the thing I want to stress uh, the most uh, out of uh, all this is that uh, nothing has been decided yet. Uh, we're still waiting on you know the sales results uh, for both uh, PlayStation launch and the Kestrel Lancer stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so at this point, it really is uh, up to uh, a, a lot of factors that are completely out of uh, um, people like me's hand. And yes. despite the fact that uh, the entire team would love to you know deliver on something like that, it really just uh, depends uh, to you know what eg7 and what uh, you know piranha management uh, wants to do mm. at this point so yeah. yeah okay yeah um in my head a little bit it's just like talking about the clans and all you know all the sales thing and stuff it's all very big picture people always you know can look at try and imagine the big picture in the future because we don't know all the particulars but uh, to try and bring it more small scale at least on my head it's like um you know with each dlc you add more tools to the toolbox 
but mm -hmm. ultimately, at least for the Kestrel Lancers, it was a chance for a more narrative focus. And at least my personal preference is like, I want to hear more of just like, you know, how we can, you know, even if it's not a big, huge money winner, you know, storytelling is still an important part of the game making process. And for me, I want to hear not just, oh, is this worth it for the money side of things, but, um, I, you know, these are the tools that we've worked on. These are the tools we're improving. You know, I want to hear somebody who's actually advocating for stories within PGI to, you know, continually improve, even if it's just, you know, a small part of the process. Oh, yeah. No, I would I would love to produce uh, further content like uh, Legends of the Kestrel Answers. Uh, like it's uh, and uh, to kind of speak on the tool side, you're absolutely right. As we you know pretty much um, are building these DLCs, we are creating new tools that we currently didn't have before. Like uh, as I kind of uh, you know said before, the Fourth Succession War was never a done deal for us internally because we did have to build out a lot of tools to basically make what was from the ground up designed as a full sandbox experience into a very specific linear campaign. So like the tools to kind of build that out were, you know, pretty much challenging to make, but we do have those tools available to us now for future DLCs if we choose to go down that road. Yeah. 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 And there's obvious influence you can take from Hairbrain Schemes Battletech. You know, we've seen um, many other storytelling tools they've implemented in their game that could be easily taken across into something like MW5. A lot harder than it sounds, but, uh, you know, we, we can definitely look at other games for inspiration, uh, but uh, you have to understand uh, is that, uh, you know, our game's architecture is going to be much different from uh, other games. Um, so as easy as it is to kind of point to other examples and go, this is what we want, uh, um, you can basically say yeah. that as design, uh, like, and it's very easy to pitch things, uh, but then you take that to engineering and they go, whoa, that's not how our underlying <laughs> systems are pretty much work. So sometimes sometimes that means that you just had to go back to the drawing board and, like, rework some things to work better with uh, your yeah. underlying, you know, engine and stuff like that. Sometimes it means that, you know, what other games have done might not necessarily be what is best for, you know, your game uh, because of how the underlying architecture is, so... But we we definitely you know look to everything else uh, for inspiration. Cool. So uh, going back a bit to the whole narrative thing and the Castrolanzas DLC, how did you choose which pack which uh, factions POV to focus on? Why not go from the Liao POV for a change? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so um, that all came down to pretty much. Um, the content that art was producing uh, very similar to like how uh, we went with the fourth succession war based on what uh, um content the art was producing that's how we also picked what the um the story was going to focus on and the thing that really won over was at the time art really wanted to focus on the uh, mech factories that they were building out uh, because they were building out interior play spaces where mechs can, you know, go through the double barrel doors and walk in and everything like that. So they wanted to have, uh, you know, a campaign that focused on that uh, um, particular asset and the mega cities. Uh, those were like kind of the two things. And so whenever you say mech factories in the fourth succession war, Tikhanov basically becomes the place that you have to pretty much, uh, you know, at least touch on because that was the biggest, uh, um, that was pretty much one of the biggest uh, battles of almost the entire Fourth Succession War that revolved around uh, the acquisition of a mech production factory, considering 
they are so rare in the yeah. lore and in the universe. And so by, you know, production basically saying that we want a mech factory to be, uh, you know, kind of uh, front and center, that pretty much solidified Tikhanov as, uh, you know, the place uh, that we were going to have to center our entire campaign around, or at least as a jumping off point. And because uh, Tikhanov, uh, you know, was then solidified that means that we have to kind of dive into lore and see who interacted with Tikhanov, and that's uh, pretty much where the crucius lancers come in because in the lore um the only people who invaded Tikhanov were all eight battalions of the crucius lancers uh, they were handpicked from you know hans davian himself basically said you are the ones who are going to take this incomparable system and so mm-hmm. at that point you know we charted out all eight of the cruiser lancers regiments and uh, kind of uh, you know um looked at uh, both uh, what they did in their uh, campaign to try to pick out interesting points uh, but also like where we um wanted uh, the players to go and the unfortunate thing with the Crucius Lancers and also with, you know, the Fourth Succession War is that, you know, it was a blitzkrieg where most of the interesting stuff kind of happened at the very front of things. And so uh, I, we there was always the option to pretty much uh, pick uh, more recognizable Crucius Lancers uh, regiments, uh, like the 7th or 8th, that had a much more integral role in fighting those really big battles in Tikhanov. But what we really wanted in the campaign was we really wanted to have players go from um, the beginning to the end of the conflict. And so, so Tikhanov was you know one of the first plants invaded, so that was going to be our opening act. And so um, because we did want to have a sense of progression through the campaign, we couldn't really start taking off off with like the big battles that were some of like the most epic fights in all the succession wars because then players you know new to the franchise would drop into the campaign just get their asses handed to them um so we ended up uh uh picking the, the second crucius for a few uh, reasons uh the first uh, reason was that you know they kind of um they had a natural progression as far as the games, uh, you know, as, as far as a game campaign is concerned. Mm-hmm. On Tikhanov, uh, they were kind of like the newer regiment uh, with, uh, you know, greener recruits. And so their one big contribution in the lore was uh, taking Gizhiga and uh, maintaining, uh, you know, pretty much uh, a garrison uh, um, up until they pretty much tried to invade Tigris. At which point, uh, you know, um, and once they get to Tigris, they see a lot of uh, you know combat uh, because the second gets ambushed uh, by Kurs intruders. That's all pretty much directly from the lore. You know they take uh, the the four cities and then they're fighting uh, this uh, war with uh, uh, Laurel's Legion and uh, um, Warrior House Hiritsu. Uh, you know pretty much for the remaining of the campaign, and so that basically allowed us uh, to you know take low level action from Tikhanov into like medium level action of uh, um tigris and then because a lot of the crucius lancers in the lore like pretty much taper off as far as their natural progression we knew we needed uh, to kind of have an act three um that centered on kind of like a big climactic uh, battle because otherwise uh, you know most players i think would uh, get you know kind of disinterested in um the campaign if it was if it played out exactly like it was in lore which was uh, a lot of you know big fights for Tikhanov, but then the fights became significantly less intense in um as the conflict wore on and as the um 
Capellan Confederation started whittling away towards like the tail end of the war. So Sarna, on the other hand, though, um, I guess I, I should say Act Three, uh, just to have, in case people don't want to spoil themselves. Mm. <laughs> but uh, so Act Act Three um, in our campaign happened because that was. Uh, it took place on a single planet for a long period of time that took us to, uh, most importantly, the very end of the Succession War. Mm-hmm. And it was probably the site of, uh, you know, the most intense fighting in, in all of the war because it was an ambush. And for the most part, uh, those uh, people who were trapped on Sarna were trapped on it for six months, just clinging, uh, you know, onto survival throughout, uh, which we felt was, you know... Kind of, uh, you know, a good way to pretty much end uh, the campaign that uh, gets players excited to participate in it. So that's pretty much how we navigated from, uh, you know, pretty much uh, the lore accurate uh, stuff uh, from the the second uh, Crucius and kind of um, navigate into uh, the Battle of uh, Act 3 for the most part. Okay. Now, yeah. um, I just have and one. On the other side, had you chosen Liao, obviously Liao got stomped all the time, so <laughs> clinging with one perspective <laughs> wasn't an easy. You would have been forced to basically switch unit every mission and such. Well, yeah. it's not just that, but also, like, Liao was put into a no-win scenario, like, where they were spending the entire war either fighting to the death or retreating. Mm-hmm. Um And e- even, uh, like, their most successful, you know, strike against uh, Davian... Uh, were you know small raids uh you know into davian space uh, that uh, you know in the end were kind of set up and also you know the battle of sarna was for the most part a big victory uh, for them up until it wasn't um so it's one of those things uh, where as a player you don't want to necessarily just like enter a campaign where you're just going to feel bad throughout the entire mm-hmm. campaign yeah <laughs> good choice actually then yeah it's yeah. also, um, I imagine, how the missions play out. The, you know, it, it's very difficult to do a fighting retreat and script that perfectly without mm. the player getting bogged down in combat. Yeah. Well, it's not just that, but also like structuring an entire campaign around a, a retreat. Like it's a, it's one thing to do like one mission where you know it's, a, um, rear guard. Effectively, yeah, it's a. It's a centerpiece, uh, you know, mission if it, you do it once. But if you mi- structure an entire campaign around an aggressive retreat, uh, like I don't think that you know most players would enjoy that kind of content, so to speak. True. <laughs> yep, you're always oh. always seeding the field, so no salvage. That's extra fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so, um, for future narratives uh say you do another castral answer like deals in the future are you gonna put the uh which faction to focus on a bit more in the foreground or is that also gonna be whatever works out works out well for us it really comes down to the gameplay and what we want um i think the thing about the fourth succession war is that it happened over a two-year period of time uh, three years if you count uh, you know the galahad war games that kind of acted as almost a prologue to it and so if we were to do another lore-centric um, conflict uh, it really comes down to what is the experience that we want the players to you know have as well as like what the conflict itself uh, you know plays like when you actually get into the game so i i know that you know you guys uh, mentioned uh, things like the war of 3039 like the the thing about the war of 3039 would be pretty much you know you're once again allying with uh, you know Davian or Karita, 
but that entire conflict only takes place over the course of a single year so it would effectively be half of the timetable that you would get from the main kestrel answers campaign so the question is is that if we were to use the kestrel answers campaign but you only had half the amount of time to pretty much you know interact with those missions would that be you know just as compelling content as it was in Kestrels, or is there another um, thing like the Andurian Crisis or the Ronin Wars or Rasselog Independence or any of those other major conflicts out there that, uh, you know, might suit those, uh, um, might suit that gameplay experience a bit better. Um, and that's like really what, where we come down. So we're, we'll never discount the War of 39. Um, but it really comes down to pretty much like, is that the kind of best application for these systems, or is there other conflicts that yeah. better are better suited to this? Um, it's a question sort of that just popped into mind, sort of like um, uh, in regards to MechWarrior Five's uh, storytelling. What would you say is its biggest selling point? What would you, um, you know, how would you sort of sell it to somebody who coming into the game? Uh, it depends. Uh... Because, because, you know, we're talking about all these um, historical battles and stuff. So is it, you know, if you've read it in the books, you can recreate it in the games? Or is it, you know, really fun to, you know, be there in self and person, etc.? How, how, um, how do you sell the narrative to, you know, a uh, prospective audience? It's kind of tough uh, because uh, for the most part, uh, the, the sales pitch of the DLC is uh, pretty much, uh, for Legend of the Kestrel Answers, is... Uh, we're thrusting you right into the middle of these epic conflicts in that you know take place within the greater narrative of the Baltic universe but in the base game it's really focused more on you know the player's experience with uh, in um the overall arc of uh, um the inner sphere so to speak so it's much more centralized on what the player um experiences and that's why we don't really have anything in the core campaign that really connects to anything in um, the overall lore, specifically, uh, you know, because we structured the entire campaign to take place over a 35-year period of time, where the players have an open sandbox with the entire inner sphere at their feet, where they mm -hmm. can travel around and experience the game as they want to. Um, so it's really it comes down to at, at the base game level, it's a, an open sandbox where you have to you know, seek out revenge uh, for your family um, within the greater context of uh, the inner sphere. Um, but for something like the Castro Lancers, it is this very specific event is happening. We're going to thrust you right into the middle of the action. So th yeah. the, the sales pitch becomes different depending on what aspect of the game you're really trying to sell because the base game is very different from, you know, the experience that the Castro Lancers provides. Okay. Yeah. There's a giant sand pit over here that's the base game, and then there's an extra little sand pit over here that you have to go, you know, from one corner to the next. Yeah. So for the next question, Bader, you've put that one pretty good in the last episode. Would you like to take it over? Yeah, so um, what is the primary theme and message that you wanted to try and uh, carry through in the storytelling uh, with uh, the Kestrel Answers? I mean, like all MechWarriors, we want uh, the storytelling to really revolve around uh, the player's um, the player's experience of building a mercenary command in the inner sphere throughout this uh, you know particular period of time. 
but in Kestrel Lancers, it's really build your mercenary unit and participate in, you know, the Fourth Succession War, like this epic conflict uh, that happened within the lore and, uh, you know, that you ask any Battletech fan, they'll probably know about it uh, just by mentioning its name. And uh, for those coming to the franchise, uh, you know, this is uh, your chance to take place in an epic battle uh, yeah. on, uh, yeah. you know... A, a scale that you would never see like as an individual mercenary command yeah um here's a sort of follow-up question a bit like um mm -hmm. uh, you were responsible of course for figuring out you know um you know what campaign this fits into and whatnot but uh, who wrote all the individual bits like um in regards to theme i think what uh, why we brought uh, brought this up was that in the actual missions your um uh, companions, your fellow crew members would talk often about the many war crimes that are taking place. <laughs> and, I remember this the last know. one. Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering, you know, um, so was there uh, could uh, conscious, dis like, what um, what part, part did you play in that? Were you writing everyone's dialogue? Did you uh, instruct everyone to have a consistent theme throughout every mission? Like, oh, that you know, war is hell, you know, hell let's make sure to remind the players with our crew members you know how did that come into being well it comes back uh, to uh, um so i guess to answer your question more directly uh, um i didn't write everything um but i did write a large chunk of uh, what uh, was seen um there was a lot of editing passes as well as, well as uh, you know um other smaller bits uh, that might have been uh, written by other designers or, you know, um, people who want to take part in the overall story. Um, but uh, as the narrative uh, director for this uh, expansion, uh, like I had to kind of uh, um, manage, uh, you know, everything that uh, pretty much went in. And the big thing uh, as far as like the overall theme is that we needed it to fit with what was already present in the base game. Because in the base game, we have uh, this open-ended campaign that you know that uh, allows you to you know side with uh, House Lao and other you know different uh, um, disparate parts of uh, you know those people of the inner sphere um, throughout uh, the core campaign, and so we want to make sure that thematically it fit with everything that was that already existed in the game, and so that means that as a mercenary you're not really particularly loyal um, to any one particular house. Like you're loyal to the people who are employing you and uh, giving you the contract, which uh, kind of allows uh, you. Um, and also that, that's uh, like another thing as well. Yeah, so if you're a mercenary, that often should sort of Im imply neutrality or, or very much being familiar with the harshities of war. Yep. Well, the other thing as well is that, uh, you know, whereas the Battletech books, um, and especially the Warrior Trilogy, uh, focus on exclusively highborn characters. Um, so if you read uh, Michael Stackpole's uh, book about this conflict, nearly every single person that you follow in those books was either born into or is now a part of, uh, you know, the upper elite of the Great Houses. And that's just not a perspective that uh, the mercenary games, uh, especially ours, where, you know, your character is from, you know, an unknown history um, that is kind of disconnected from the goings on of the inner sphere. Um, so we really wanted the campaign to be m much more about, uh, like, the boots on the ground. So rather than the eye in the sky look that you get in the Warrior Trilogy, 
you are the ones that are on the ground actually getting the work done and you kind of see kind of the duality that uh, you know these conflicts uh, um kind of present themselves uh, with uh, cuz you know the populace of Tikhonov and uh, you know Tigris in particular are people who really flourished uh, within you know the confines of the Capellan Confederation like they were allied with them for years and they were you know both uh, you know the wealthy families as well as uh, you know the centers of industry for that entire nation so their populace's perspective of the goings on of the Capellan Confederation are probably a lot different uh, than what other people's uh, you know perspective in like the farm worlds and stuff uh, for the Capellan Confederation so we wanted to really kind of uh, um preserve that more boots on the ground uh, look that MechWarrior games are supposed to provide uh, players with and mm. also you know again be an introduction into the uh, universe itself because again uh, MechWarrior games are kind of those uh, um first layers of exposure for a lot of players to the ip itself i get it in that sense and i also get the perspective from the layout soldiers in particular during the mech factory raid the kind of glimpses you got uh, on their side but i think the main thing that really put me off and the mm -hmm. the one thing that i would happily cut out of the campaign altogether is Fahad and his very strong opinions yeah. and especially like how do you do a major invasion the biggest invasion in decades and then there's a mech tech on the comm line with the commander of the operation how does that work in the military so a lot <laughs> we we know uh, that i i definitely know that fahad uh, you know is definitely rubs people some people the wrong way um but I, I, the problem with uh, fahad is that you know uh, i inherited him uh, from the base campaign i can't get rid of him and replace him because he is a, a consistent uh, you know um character that was put into the base game well before i took over any of the narrative elements of the story and so he really you know serves uh, at least in legend of the kestrel answers he kind of uh, serves as like that audience surrogate for those people who are unfamiliar with um the ip to really ask um kind of the questions and it's one of those things uh, where it doesn't really make sense to really introduce a new character because we would have had to keep him um centered in the davian campaign um and the only other person in the player sphere that you have to work with is rihanna and fahad are pretty much it when it comes to um players within the the sphere of influence uh, you know of the player that come into it and rihanna has been a mercenary for generations so she already knows all this and so fahad just by default uh, pretty much becomes that vehicle for us to kind of transmit those uh, you know um those the ideas uh, of uh, the um of the ip itself and to kind of give those uh, themes uh, you know and also allow us to elaborate on those things uh, that most players uh, might ask uh, coming to this franchise for the first time okay. yeah I still think it would have been much better if he had been on comp channel before Yana and then Rayana giving you the exposition dump rather than, you know, Jackson Devian, the high level commander, talking to a simple mech tech. Yeah. That was weird. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's definitely one of those things uh, where the base game really only revolves around three characters, uh, which is pretty much uh, the uh, main character, Rihanna, and Fahad. Uh, there's no one else that we kind of have from that 
core experience that we can kind of translate to, to it. So love him or hate him, he is like one of the three characters that, you know, we have to work with when it comes to those kind of exposition things. And he also kind of serves as uh, someone who isn't trained as a mech warrior, isn't trained as uh, like a mercenary, really. He's just a, a tech that uh, might have... Uh, so he becomes like just a natural um, kind of default that allows us to ask those questions for that an experienced uh, mech warrior or mercenary might not know. Yeah, so I find it just—it's a bit odd with you know when you say asking those questions, you know, sort of that you know you're starting the invasion. Vahad gets on the com radio with the <laughs> commander in chief, and just like, but war, people will die, and it's um, the, the thing is um you know you are a silent protagonist you're not really actually mm -hmm. there to go oh what is the meaning of life or why you know why am i taking part in these wars you fill in the blanks yourself but it becomes very different when you have one of your crew members who are sort of an extension of the player bringing up moral questions particularly when you have no way of really sort of answering them or changing the course of the war or anything like that yeah it was just weird. Like, if I was Jackson Davian at that point, I would have been like, get your tag off the line or I'm going to have him executed. <laughs> yeah. That's basically my opinion on Fahd. Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. Love him or hate him, he's one of the few characters that is consistent throughout the storyline. And it's one of those things where, you know, he is one of the two characters I have to, to work with outside of, you know, the player character um, themselves when it comes to even engaging with uh, characters that uh, might uh, be specific to the DLC, so. So where are all involved with the whole uh, hiring voice actors and uh, overseeing their recording sessions and stuff? So how involved was I with that? Yeah. Um, I was involved with uh, a few of the big roles, uh, like, um, what is it? Uh, like Jackson Davian, um, Arden Sortek, uh, Alana Damu, I was uh, pretty involved uh, with uh, those because uh, those were like fairly big characters. But for a lot of like the smaller roles uh, of uh, you know people that uh, only came in for like one mission or so, uh, those were left up uh, to the audio team. Um, and obviously, yeah. you know those characters that were imported in from um, earlier DLCs or the base game were already cast uh, prior to my involvement with the, you know, the narrative side of things. Yeah, so can you tell us a bit about how the casting process is for voice actors? Um, it's pretty uh, straightforward. Uh, for the most part, we have uh, the scripts written out, um, or at least part of the scripts written out, uh, when and a general idea of uh, what uh, the characters have to be. Uh, for Legends of the Kestrel Lancers, uh, we had the benefit uh, of uh, um, all the lore that was already built out for these said characters um, because uh, they uh, um, almost everyone that appears in Kestrel Lancers at least has some kind of grounding within the lore of the universe itself. And so that allowed us to kind of really narrow down the field for how characters like Jackson Davian or Andalana Damu are supposed to be because those are characters from you know the novels. Um, and, uh, you know, we tried to fit it as uh, best as uh, we could, uh, but, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, um, I was only involved with uh, mostly, like, the main characters, uh, um, and because there's a lot of things to do uh, in production. I, even though I was, like, the narrative director for this stuff, I still had to do, uh, um, you know, the actual system design work for a lot of, like, the campaign stuff. 
What I was wondering about, uh, were the recordings done in a local studio or were the voice actors recording in their own equipment? So um, it's a mixture of both, uh, depending on what it is. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a few of the generic mech warriors uh, in the, uh, Legend of the Kestrel Lancers uh, that are just one-bit roles um, that were recorded uh, in the studio by you know PGI staff. Uh, in fact, uh, People like you might even if you listen uh, carefully enough, you might see uh, you know Darren plays a few characters within the campaign, and uh, <laughs> some of our other you know designers uh, mm -hmm. play uh, some of the minor roles in the campaign. Um, but uh, those bigger roles are um, usually handled uh, um, you know because of COVID, uh, they're usually handled uh, through the voice actors uh, usually submitting that stuff uh, um, remotely. Sometimes it's uh, through directed sessions, uh, sometimes not. Um, But uh, for the most part, you know, because of COVID, uh, um, a, a lot of it is recorded on their end uh, through their studios and then sent to, over to us. Whereas, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we record uh, in our studios is more for those bit roles that, you know, most of uh, take place, you know, through the PGI staff, uh, just getting their own lines in the game. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I found that interesting compared to the uh, first campaign that on a, on the castrol lens and stuff the voice acting was just i feel in general better and like also quality wise more equalized like i don't know if someone has brought it up to you but in the base campaign you have all the characters with their kind of voice quality and then you have spencer coming in elias yeah. faxes which mm -hmm. who's just sounds completely different who literally sounds like he's in a recording studio while everyone else is kind of more in the world and like with the Kestrel Lancers, it was more, everyone felt like they were in world and not in a recording studio. If you know what I'm yeah. saying? <laughs> well, I, I do know that. Um, so there was a lot of post-process that happens, uh, you know, in the game itself, because uh, within the game, uh, you, you're not necessarily hearing uh, the audio through, you know, crystal clear recordings. You're hearing it through, pretty much radio comms with a lot of, you know, um, battlefield interference uh, on it. So even ally lines that have very subtle um, filtration on uh, the actual performances to kind of uh, make sure that it sounds like it's something coming in through comms and not something that's just, uh, you know, um, like recorded in a studio, for lack of a better term. Because I, I can tell you this, uh, like having heard the... The temporary stuff before those kind of effects are put through it it does sound incredibly weird to have direct studio recordings in uh, the campaign without those uh, things but uh, yeah. um for for legends of the kestrel answers we did because of the like the much more um, focus on the audio experience uh, um, and also like the narrative storytelling we did do some edits to the filtration that we did uh, put on uh, both allies and enemies and that might uh, have allowed uh, it to sound a little bit more equalized than the base game. Um, but because it's uh, applied as a post-effect, uh, like any kind of change that we did uh, to um, Legends of the Kestrel Answers would be applied uh, globally. So, you know, if you were to play the campaign again, you might actually find that uh, those audio recordings might have been cleared up a little mm -hmm. bit uh, because we adjusted those uh, filters. That's cool. 
So yeah, I mean, for future reference, if you're taking feedback, uh, I love the voice actor of Jackson Devian. If you bring the character back, thanks for <laughs> <hire> him. <laughs> yeah, no, he, we we knew that uh, that was uh, the character to get right, not only because uh, he's like a fairly big um, character in the lore, especially going into later timelines, but also because uh, you spend just so much time with him, you know, in the campaigns. So we just wanted to really make sure that uh, that was the role that we really need to make sure that we get yeah. right, both. Because for the most part, it's mostly him and uh, um, Alana Damu and uh, uh, Colonel Westrick. Those are like the three guys that you spend the most amount of time talking to. You, so, hmm. yeah. So then, uh, for questions, I kind of have one last topic uh, that's yeah. close to my heart, which are the cinematics. Uh, the two of us talked on Twitter a bit about this, <laughs> and you kind of mentioned uh, that cinematics were not initially planned for the DLC. And just mm -hmm. kind of something you were able to do more at the end. Uh, how how do you feel about that? And uh, like, what would you think the kind of would you think without the cinematics, the experience would have been good enough? I mean, it's tough to tell because we did. The reason we got the cinematics in was because uh, a lot of us on the internal team were pushing for it, and. I think that that really goes to show, you know, kind of uh, what a boon that the uh, merger with EG7 has been, because uh, for uh, Heroes of the Inner Sphere and for the base game, a lot of those in-studio resources that uh, we were able to tap to get those cinematics were the people who would normally be devoted towards uh, marketing material. Um, so, like the, for example, the guy who does the the, cine the same cinematics for the game is also the guy. Um, that works on like the feature trailers and stuff like that uh, and uh, because eg7 was kind of uh, you know and uh, petrol were taking the reins on uh, um the main marketing when it came to that uh wedding scene trailer as well as you know the launch trailer for the game that allowed us uh, to free up resources uh, on the internal team that we could throw into those cinematics and it, it was something that we were um very much pushing for internally and, and uh, i am glad that we were able to get around to it and it it was something that came up very late in the process um and it, it really is a testament to what rob was able to put together in the short amount of time that he had to you know really uh drive home what we you know want to narratively uh, put together because uh, one thing that we that at least what i really want to do is i wanted to really make sure that uh, the plants that you were invading weren't just dots on a map um, mm -hmm. because yeah. um, when it came to the fourth succession war, each of those plants were invaded for a very specific reason because those planets had, you know, characters all of their own. And if they were just dots on a map, like it makes it really hard for players to invest into why this conflict is so important to, to uh, you know, the war effort. And so those cinematics, uh, you know, were really something that we really wanted to focus on to highlight why uh, the battle for this planet was so important to within the greater context of the war. Yeah, if if they're just dots on the map, you can't even click on the map whilst you're in the campaign. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> fair point. So um, um, maybe wishful thinking, but any plans to potentially add on a fourth cinematic in a future update for the DLC? That's going to entirely depend on, uh, you know, how well-received uh, the Kestrel Answers is and how well, you know, it, um, the sales and everything are. Like, uh, it, it's unfortunate that we were only able to, to get to three cinematics. Uh, you know, we would have loved to get to, uh, you know, another one to kind of wrap up uh, the story, but uh, it was 
it was just one of those things uh, that you know we were just physically running out of time at the at that point um so and it it really uh, i feel stands as a testament to how important those cinematics are because uh, you know the ending for uh the campaigns with like those briefing texts mm-hmm. that is pretty much how uh the here's the inner sphere content was really you know produced and that is potentially what uh, legends of the kestrel answers could have been if we weren't able to get those cinematics in so it really stands that as a testament to how you know um impactful those cinematics are that uh, yeah. you know it not only gets rid of like those walls of text but also you know contextualizes things in a much more visual way for a visual media but you know as far as getting a fourth one out that's going to be completely not up to me it's mm-hmm. uh, going to be entirely dependent on you know how well yeah. You know everything goes up for without without the cinematics, the whole story is only pretty pr- primarily presented with text, and that's yeah. mm-hmm. sadly how, sort of how it ends off. In my head, like the funny way you could round it off is uh, all you need to do is put a box next to Fahad, which uh, is the AMS that they send you with no ammo, and he just has a, a voice <laughs> which, saying, "Which is a bug? <laughs> this is an awful, amazing piece of tech. It's a pity we have no ammo for it, and there's no mix that can take it for like decades." <laughs> That, stuff like that is uh, pretty much um, just uh, what is it? Um, those are bugs uh, from uh, the R and D phase because uh, you have to remember that uh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the linear campaign is all new um, under the hood stuff, and so we pretty much had to do test runs to make sure that all the features themselves were working. And uh, like things like the AMS were just uh, you know one of those things where you know this this DLC on the production side came in very very hot um because we wanted to make sure that uh, this experience was um as epic as we can make it within the time that we presented uh, to the players um and one of the unfortunate uh, consequences of that is uh, pretty much uh, that there were some of those uh, production hiccups like that uh, you know blank ams that were really there because it's literally the first thing that pops up on the debug stuff uh, you know that were thrown in (laughs) as uh, effectively you know um test bed stuff for us on you know yeah. the development side that we just never got around to stripping out but i i will say though that um we are aware of those things and um even though we did uh, just uh, publish an update we are in the process of working on an update that uh, gets uh, um a lot of those uh, things fixed up um yeah. Yeah. including yeah. like uh, you know I think people have commented that some hero mix or some out of timeline variants are in the Kestrel Answers campaign mm-hmm. when they're not supposed to. So yeah. like, like bu- bugs like that that uh, unfortunately were not like critical bugs. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are going to get another update out to kind of fix those up. We're not going to yeah. leave them there. I'm I'm gonna say it's kind of funny. Uh, the fourth succession war ended because Devian ran out of money. And the campaign didn't have a fourth cinematic because the studio went out of money. <laughs> which, which is actually kind of funny uh, because um, I, I know uh, one of the feedbacks that we've seen about Fourth Succession War is that it ended very suddenly. And mm-hmm. uh, it's odd. Uh, this is kind of like uh, the double-edged sword of uh, being very true to the lore is that when random stuff like that happens in the lore, you kind of have a question as a designer of, uh, you know, do you stick uh, with uh, you know what happens to the letter, or do you have to fu- do you f- deliberately fudge things uh, you know specifically to uh, um, make it feel better for the player? But this is like uh, one of those things where 
the Battle of Sarna pretty much, uh, you know, you're cut off from the rest of the Inner Sphere. And uh, by the time the Battle of Sarna ends, like, the war has already been over for months now. E even in the novels and stuff, like, the novels end probably about uh, a month and a half before the Battle of yep. Sarna ends because they were cut off. So they get the reinforcements, uh, you know, from uh, um, House Davian uh, and, uh, you know, the he the heavy guards kind of come in to save the day. And then only they only find out that, uh, hey, war's been over for months. We're pretty much the cleanup crew. <laughs> yeah. But I think I, I do very much agree sort of we're in pushing just that uh, a final cinematic to give a proper sense of denouement would be great yeah. just showing mm -hmm. how the map has changed with the invasion and talking about how the Federated Sons have all the financial issues and whatnot as a consequence of the crisis. Yeah, we we would have loved to do it, but, uh, you know, as we said uh, earlier, the even getting those three cinematics in was very much a stretch goal for the team that we were pushing very aggressively for, but uh, pretty much uh, you should have <laughs> seen that the producers' faces uh, when uh, we even suggested it because it's kind of just like oh my god because I, I think like when we initially pitched it uh, like. Uh, what they're going on in the back of the th their head is uh, that uh, oh it's like the opening cinematic to the campaign where it's this long complex thing and so we were able to rod uh, you know and i were able to find out uh, a way to, that you know we can do it on a budget and still have like the impact which is great but uh, even yeah. with all that stuff we only have so much time to produce the content yeah. i mean yeah. really just having just having a voice over at the end would, mm -hmm. yeah, would still nice. be better than, than well i know that yeah, the... yeah. oh. go on i'm sorry uh, mission briefings were another thing that uh, you know we we really wanted to get in but th that was something where we actually ran out of time for mm -hmm. because uh, yeah. um when as far as writing uh, the campaign uh, um when when we get around to writing stuff uh, we start out with an outline that uh, kind of outlines where everything takes place uh, within the game itself mm -hmm. and then uh, um we write all the in-game stuff uh, first because that's the stuff that has to be cast th through the voice actors and we need to um, provide them with scripts uh, so uh, you know they can do auditions and uh, everything like that. So the briefing text is kind of like the last thing that gets uh, you know written and so we are really pushing to try to get that in. Um, but it just uh, came down to by the time like the briefing text was all written up, uh, like the voice actors were already pretty much, uh, you know, done with all their voice uh, yeah. recordings. Yeah. There was yeah. just no way that we can get them back. So, well, I do know that like when you guys put in the uh, the graphic of uh, the new dropship and the new jump ship, you know, um, cinematic, I was totally excited. I mean, I was like, thank God they changed the freaking, yeah, um, you know, jump ship you know, jump in. I was like, yay. And then it went to the, to the original one. So I put a mod in <laughs> to take that out, but still I was so excited about that. You don't understand. I was streaming and I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Thank God. They took that damn thing out. And, and you know, but, but still it was good though. It was really good. Which, which ironically was a, a recycle job from uh, the initial campaign. Cause I think oh, really? that uh, that's, that's the yep. simic that plays uh, when um, you get off of the first planet uh, mm -hmm. in yeah the initial campaign it was just one of those things where you know we wanted to signify that this is uh, you know going to happen like you you will have these cinematics later in the campaign but like the prologue was uh, and the galahad war games was not like high intensity enough uh, that it kind of justified uh, producing like an entire cinematic for it mm -hmm. uh, um so that was just like our way of kind of 
priming the players uh, for the cinemax that would show up later in the campaign i just thought you changed it and i was just so excited yeah. but then <laughs> i was let down into that i got, I got just super confused when i saw because i had the mod that disables jump ships animation i'm like shit did the mod get broken during the update there's a jump ship <laughs> animation <laughs> <And there we're laughs> okay <laughs> Okay, um, I think that's it, actually, for all the different questions that we have, right? Okay. Yeah, on my end, I kind of burned through the important questions, and we are also already over time. So, uh, Bob Beider, do you have any closing questions for Chris while he's still here? Not really, just great job, pretty much. Um, love the narration, and uh, I wish you went with uh, option uh, two and three, but uh, <laughs> that's just me. But, uh, you know, hopefully in the future, that'd be kind of cool to go ahead and see. I would love to see that because I'm a big lore freakazoid. So, like, uh, seeing, you know, Arduin Crisis and, you know, seeing that, you know, the War 39 would be kind of cool to go ahead and uh, mm -hmm. go ahead and be part of, you know, especially for the franchise that's out here now. Yep. Yeah. Um, I only have broad sort of questions left in my head just regarding, like, um, the Casual Lancers DRC. Sort of how long was that in the pipeline and how many people worked on it, just roughly speaking? So I can't talk on staffing, um, mostly because I just don't know. That would be a question for yes. production. Um, it's it's tough to know how big the staff is when I'm working in San Francisco and they're working in Vancouver. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, um, as far as how long it took, it's it really depends on um, the department. Uh, so like I think uh, I was uh, on it uh, for about. Uh, I would say like five to six months, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but but that was just um, for my contributions uh, to it. Uh, the art team was working on it months before I, you know, was on. Like uh, pretty much, our team was working on it. Uh, well, while we were still knee deep in Heroes of the Inner Sphere, um, mm. so it really just uh, kind of depends on uh, the department. Uh, so uh, um, production would uh, unfortunately be the one that uh, you would have to talk to for like. A yeah, scope on yeah. how the entire thing went down. So, um, when did you stop working on the Crestral Lancers DLC? Just before launch? Oh. Or... Um, probably like a, a few weeks ago, like after launch, because uh, you have to remember, yeah. um, as I said, the Legend of the Kestrel Lancers came in incredibly hot, and we know that there were um, a number of unfortunate bugs that made it in that were not like. They weren't game breaking, uh, so it's one of those things that we want to wrap up in uh, an update. So we've been working on, you know, uh, making sure that those bugs do get fixed up, and we will be uh, addressing them in a future update. Yeah, and uh, speaking of addressing future updates, there's one thing that I completely forgot to mention earlier that I do kind of want to relate to you. Um, with back with going all the way back with macro Online, uh, we on this podcast often critique PGI for their way of communication to the player base, and with the Legend of Castrol Lancers, you've done something that you really haven't done at all as a studio. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you're the right person to address this to, but we felt this was a really positive change because PGI in the past has not been great at being open in their communication. As much as Darren and other people are trying, it's not really the strong suit of uh, your company. Mm -hmm. So the alternative that you friend with the Legend of the Castle Lens is just being silent about it, shushing mm -hmm. up altogether, and then just <laughs> yeah. immediately throw it up. By the way, next week, DLC. Yeah, That was a really good way for PGI. And uh, I do want to say, I hope you're going to be keeping this kind of style. 
as much as I would like to know way in advance, uh, <laughs> this is really good for expectation management. And yeah. I have never been so hyped about a PGI title as I have been about the Legend of the Yeah, Kings that was total out of third base, man. I was sitting there going, yeah. oh my God, there's something coming out. I didn't even know anything about this. It was good. That was really good. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I think, uh, I mean, uh, that's all on Matt and Darren, um, but it's also, uh, you know, kind of a testament to our partnership with the EG7 and Petrol because. Uh, um, both of those uh, really took the reins on uh, the marketing side, and uh, we wouldn't have uh, been able to get those uh, really nice trailers if it wasn't for the hard work from those guys over at Petrol. Um, mm. And uh, we wouldn't have ha had their support without EG7. So it really kind of, uh, you know, came down to uh, you know what we're now able to do now that we're you know a part of a much bigger family than when we were going it alone and being independent. Yeah, so definitely compliments from us yeah. on the way you launched yeah. Castro Lancers. That was the best launch I've seen Perfect. from Prewinder Games. And yeah. that makes me very excited for future releases you guys have planned. Yep. We're looking forward. Um, by the way, DLC coming out tomorrow. That would be even yeah. <laughs> Well, that's how, uh, that's how No Man's Sky does it. You know, basically he puts up a picture and then boom, next next day it comes out a big a big patch, like a big DLC for it. So it, it's good and that's a good way to do it. And I... But, Wow, it was good. It was way good. Yeah, the the only thing I can uh, say for certain at this point is uh, we will be doing an update to fix uh, a lot of uh, the bugs that we know still exist in the game. And uh, um, past that, uh, stay tuned because uh, we definitely are continuing to work on some things. Um, but as to what those things are, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Yep, yeah. yep, wait yep. and see, and. Um... Just suddenly, out of nowhere, get an email. By the way, next week you can buy this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, uh, Bob Bider, if you don't have any final questions, uh, I would like to thank you again for being on the podcast, Chris. Do yeah, you have any for last me. words? Um, thanks, everyone, for supporting uh, Legend of the Kestrel Lancers, as well as, uh, you know, uh, just the Battletech franchise as a whole. Uh, we hope you guys are enjoying it. And uh, stay tuned. We got more coming both on, you know, the... MechWarrior side of things, as well as, uh, you know, the CGL Battletech side of things. Oh, yay. Cool. Yes. And with that, thank That's you all it. for listening to the First Circuit Podcast, episode 175. Today's special guest, Chris Lowry from Pyronic Games slash Catalyst. 57. Uh, 57, did I, did I? Oh, God, I messed up the numbers. <laughs> One, five, seven. Special guest, Chris Lowry. Today is October the 23rd. See, yes. I'm not signed now. Okay, yet. there we go. <laughs> so it won't be out on the 23rd. Also, our host is here today are the usuals, like me, Biter, Blarik. <laughs> me, Bob. Hello, yeah. Blarik. And, and Ian. Myself, Ian Trisari. And of course, special guest, Chris. Thank you again for listening. Thanks, everyone. And see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Take it easy. Bye-bye.